Calls are growing louder for former FBI Director James Comey to be brought up on perjury charges after an inspector general's report revealed that he is, in fact, a weasel. Comey had repeatedly claimed that he was not a weasel, including once when he was testifying before the House Judiciary Committee, which could be seen as perjury now that the IG's report has uncovered that Comey was not just a weasel, but a weasley weasel of extreme weasel, weasel, weasley weaselness. Investigators are also looking into reports that Comey, while serving as director, often stood before the mirror and said, quote, I am not a weasel. Really, I'm not. No matter what anybody says, I am not 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 a weasel, unquote, which might constitute lying to the FBI. Comey's weaseliness has been revealed again and again. Not only did he overstep proper procedure by publicly excoriating Hillary Clinton while declaring she should not be prosecuted, not only did he bring a salacious and untrue piece of oppo research to President Trump as part of his plan to make the ugly lies public, he also leaked classified memos to the press, memos about meetings with the president during which he claimed once again not to be a weasel even while being a sanctimonious hypocrite who took sleazy, unethical actions like an extremely weasley, weasley weasel. Mick Weasel of the International Association of Weasels denies that Comey is a weasel. In a speech before an angry gathering of polecats, stoats, ferrets, and Peter Strzok, Mr. Weasel said, quote, While it is true we are vermin that sneak into hen houses and rabbit warrens in order to steal and devour helpless farm animals, we have never sunk to the level of James Comey, and we consider being associated with him a rank example of weasel phobia, unquote. The weasel then demanded an apology, and so did James Comey, proving once again that he's a weasel. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. Life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, hooray, hurrah, we are back, and I hope you all had a wonderful, long weekend. Today, I'm going to take a big picture look at the fight I think we're in and why I think the Epstein case and Brexit are both part of that same phenomenon. But before I do that, or as part of that, I just want to reiterate what I guess is one of the themes of this podcast, which is the way that bad ideas take you down to ro- the road to hell. I saw a story on Twitter over the weekend about a group of pro-abortion demonstrators in Chile who burned baby dolls in effigy at a protest. I couldn't believe that was true. It sounded like one of those right-wing fantasies. So I decided to check it with a pro-abortion website. And I was saddened to see, yes, there was the video. It was true. And the website was making excuses for the protesters. After all, they were saying they weren't burning babies. They were just burning dolls. I admit, old as I am, I still get a little shocked. Not that people degrade themselves and become steeped in wickedness, but that they can't see it, that they're blind to what they've become. Good people do terrible things in the grip of bad ideas. To burn something in effigy is an act of mockery and protest with obvious ties to homeopathic magic. Homeopathic magic is the most primitive kind of magic. It's the idea that if you do something to an image of something, you do it to the thing itself, like voodoo when you stab a doll to hurt the person. So if you were a passionate pro-abortion advocate, it might make some sort of moral sense to burn an image of your political opponent in effigy, someone who's against abortion. But to burn the image of a child is to reveal a very unpleasant truth about who you've turned yourself into. 
Supporting abortion is not incomprehensible. Women want to be free and they want to be equal, and they aren't free of their biology, and their biology isn't equal to the biology of men's. It's not the same. So that gets in their way, and I understand that problem. Unfortunately, abortion as a solution is a moral nonsense. You're killing an innocent human being to achieve your goal. It doesn't matter if the person you kill can't play checkers yet or make preference choices. It doesn't even matter if they feel pain or not. It's an innocent human person. You're exterminating him. That's morally wrong. So the protesters were right. It is the baby that's their problem, and it's the baby that's their enemy. They're in a battle against the facts of life. The fact of the baby is in their way. The fact that sex has consequences. The fact of motherhood and its unique and even sacred responsibilities. The fact of being a female human being. By lying to themselves about this, to get the result they want, pro-abortion people have followed a bad idea into hell. They've degraded themselves until they stand against life itself, and that's why they're burning children in effigy. Bad ideas do this to all of us, and all of us have bad ideas sometimes. The big trick in life is to admit when you're wrong and then change your ideas and try to come up with better ones. If you're on the road to hell, turn the hell around. Today, I want to look at a fight that I think underlies a lot of the fights we're having and put forward why I'm on one side, despite the flaws of the people who represent it, and why I think the other side, despite the many good people on it, is embracing a very, very bad idea. And we're going to do that in a second, but first, let us talk about Stamps.com. We love Stamps.com because we live in L.A., but no matter where you live, you don't want to have to go to the post office to get the great things that the post office offers. You want the post office in your computer. That's Stamps.com. They bring all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. It saves you time and money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, which is cool, without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Clavin, Stamps.com, and enter Clavin, and then stamp your email right, stamp your mail right from your computer and write to someone and say, how do I spell Clavin so I can get this great deal? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Short week tomorrow, the mailbag is already here. <laughs> <laughs> that poor girl has been trapped in this office all uh, weekend long. It's terrible. No wonder she's screaming for help. But please go on dailywire.com. Hit the podcast button. Hit the Andrew Claven podcast. You will see a little picture of a mailbag. If you are a subscriber, and of course you're a subscriber, it's only 10 bucks a month, 100 lousy bucks for the year. If you're a subscriber, you can ask me anything you want. Ask me about your personal life. Ask me about religion. Ask me about politics. Anything you want. And all my answers are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life. For the better, <laughs> you've got to subscribe to find out. But that's tomorrow, so get your uh, letters in today. So uh, two stories that just stuck in my mind all weekend. One is the Jeffrey Epstein case, which is getting more and more, not to mention more bizarre. And the other is Brexit, which is coming up. October 31st is now the deadline for Brexit. And 
we're not going to get into the high weeds of British politics because I know it's complicated to figure out the parliamentary system, but it's easy to see what's going on over there. And it really, these really are in some ways the same story. So first of all, the Epstein case, the latest incredible break on this is that this model agency boss, the 72-year-old guy named Jean-Luc Brunel, right, who has been suspected of recruiting uh, models for Jeffrey Epstein's sex ring, right? The French want to quiz him over his ties to Epstein. This is from the New York Post as part of their own probe into the late financier who had a house in Paris. Uh, And the guy has vanished, okay? The guy has just vanished. This is a legal source in Paris, says he is a ghost who has disappeared without a trace. This is Brunel has discovered some of the biggest names in modeling, including Christy Turlington and Angie Everhart. And investigators have made inquiries throughout the U.S. and Europe, as well as Brazil, where the Frenchman was seen looking for girls just three months before uh, Epstein was arrested. And the guy has just disappeared. So this is a big, big deal, right? Uh, Epstein invested a million bucks to help launch Brunel's Miami-based modeling firm. And they accuse him of, of re- in return, of giving a supply of girls on tap, according to one lawsuit, even allegedly sending him three 12-year-old girls as a sick birthday present, okay? And so this is this comes on top of the of the cameras, two cameras, I believe it is now, that didn't work or said to be, have unusable footage in the prison where Epstein hanged himself. Uh, and, you know, People get keep getting accused of being conspiracy theorists because the uh, ME says, oh, well, it, what, he did hang himself. He wasn't murdered. But look, it, you know, we know from watching The Godfather 2, I think it was, that they can reach you in prison. They can make they can make it so it is worth your while to hang yourself. I'm sure he has family. I'm sure he has other people out there. And what we know about this, right, is in order for this guy to operate as long as he did, he was connected to some incredibly powerful people, not just here, but in Britain, probably in France, <clears throat> people who came to town and sent him little texts that said, oh, I'm staying at this hotel. That's it. Why? Because he was a rape pimp. He was somebody who pimped little girls, 12-year-old, 13, 14-year-old, underage girls to people who wanted to use them, and that is rape. And it's statutory rape, but it's rape all the same, especially, uh, look, <laughs> It's one thing if a 15-year-old is sleeping with a 14-year-old. That it could be unwise. It could be many things. It may be illegal. But it's not the same thing as these very rich, very powerful people. And, you know, this is something I've said this before. I said it the minute this case hit. hit, And I, I told you about the fact that uh, Another Kingdom, which we're, is coming up in October, early October. We're going to start to record it uh, this week, in fact, um, that I, I plotted this novel years ago, and it is about a story so similar to the Epstein case that it's really remarkable. And I wasn't even thinking about the Epstein case when I wrote it, but I did notice that this is something that elites do. They use little girls and boys. They use little girls and boys for sex. People who get power do this. It is something that they do, and they do it, and they stop thinking about the fact that it's wrong, and they stop thinking about the power differential. That's what they stop thinking about. They stop thinking about the very fact they're abusing their power. You know, uh, this this audio tape, uh, an audio interview of Quentin Tarantino talking to Howard Stern about Roman Polanski uh, has resurfaced on uh, Jezebel, the website Jezebel. It's from 2003. It has come out before, but it's worth playing again. Remember, in 2009, uh, 
Roman Polanski, who drugged and sodomized a 13-year-old girl, he gave her pills and booze and then sodomized her. And the woman, the girl who's now a woman says she forgives him. She wants to let it go. But he was convicted and he blew the country and he has never faced justice. And at one point he was uh, picked up in Switzerland and all of Hollywood, led by Harvey Weinstein, in 2009, signed a petition demanding his release. And he ultimately was not extradited to the United States to face justice. And this was all of Hollywood standing up for him. Woody Allen signed that petition, all the usual suspects. And Harvey Weinstein, this is when he said, uh, you know, Hollywood should be the moral arbiter because Hollywood has compassion. Okay, this is when that's when he said that. Here is this tape that has resurfaced of Quentin Tarantino talking to Howard Stern about why this wasn't rape. He didn't rape a 13 year old. It was statutory rape. How can you defend? See, I don't understand this. How come Hollywood embraces this madman, this director who raped a 13 year old? It's not statutory rape. You know, he had sex with a with a minor. All right, that's not rape to me. When you use the word rape, all right, right you're talking about violent throwing them down. It's like one of the most violent crimes in the world. You can't throw. You know, throwing the word rape around is like throwing the word racist around. All okay, right? You know, okay. it just doesn't apply to everything that people use it for. All right. You know, he was he was guilty of having sex with a minor. All that right? she didn't want to have. No, that was not the case at all. She wanted to have it. Well, and dated, the dated, dated the guy, dated the guy. Dated and, the guy. And, and, she was 13. And found out. Well, you know, by the way, we're talking about America's morals. We're not talking about the morals in Europe and everything. Uh, Wait a second. Morals in Europe, morals in China. With a 13-year-old girl in Europe. And a grown man, uh-huh. you know that that's wrong because oh, no, she has giving her booze and, and pills. I'm not, talking, I'm not look. She was down with it. She was down with it. All right, we're going to talk about. I got to unpack this because there's a lot to it. Let us talk about Helix Sleep. I love they Helix sent me a mattress. I love this mattress. It is so comfortable. It's different. It's different than other mattresses, and you can tailor it to exactly what you want. They have a quiz that you take. It takes two minutes to complete the quiz. They match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. And no matter how you sleep, on your side, on your back, or like me, by lying awake all night, Helix makes what your body needs. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Clavin and take this two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. So you're going to sleep on this thing and sleep really well and really comfortably. I lay awake, so I know how comfortable it is. I am experiencing this thing all night. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to 125 bucks off all mattress orders for our listeners, up to 125 bucks off at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. That's helixsleep.com slash Clavin for up to 125 bucks off your mattress order, helixsleep.com slash Clavin. And you can lie awake all night if you want to, like me, and just ask yourself, how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A. There's no ease in Clavin. I just make it look this incredibly easy. Here's the thing about what Tarantino said. A lot of things about it, but one important thing. Rape is a stripping of a person's will. The reason we think it is such a horrible crime, it's really right under murder, isn't it? When you think about the harsh, horrible crimes, it's not the violence makes it worse. There's no question. Using violence makes everything worse always. It's always, violence is always a a bad thing. But it's the stripping of a person's will. If you, you know, this this is a point that's also in the first volume of Another Kingdom, is that the actions that you take in rape, theoretically, can be the exact same actions that you take in making love. 
You may not use physical violence. You might use a gun, say, to subdue somebody or simply threats, simply intimidation, simply extortion, all the kinds of things. I'll give you this job uh, if you have sex with me. All the kinds of things you can do to take away a person's will. The difference between rape and making love is the woman's will because she is an independent individual who has the right to make decisions about what happens to her. That's the crime. That's the crime of rape. So when you do this to a 13-year-old who cannot make those decisions, when you do it with drugs and, and alcohol to boot, you are committing rape. And Tarantino is wrong. And what's so fascinating about this, if you go and see Tarantino's latest movie, he knows he's wrong because the thing is, you can't tell an immoral story. Immorality will always catch up with you in a story because people will react to it badly. They won't react the way you want them to. In his new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's a wonderful scene. It's one of the best scenes in the picture where an underage girl gets in the car with Brad Pitt, who's kind of a loser in life, and she offers herself to him, and he says no. And it's not that she's not appealing, because she is. She's a very pretty, sexy girl in the picture. I don't know how old the actress is, but in the picture, she's 15. And the minute he says no, you know he's the hero of the movie. You know it. The minute you know he says it, and Tarantino knows it. So maybe he's changed over time. I hope that's true. I mean, there's been a lot of accusations against him that he mistreats people. But the point is power and the individual. When Tarantino is talking on that audio tape, he has forgotten. He has forgotten the obligation to let the individual thrive. He says this is American morals, not European morals. What the hell is he talking about? We're far, far more puritanical than the Europeans. But we know, too, that the in, you know, this is what the whole country is based on. It's based on individual freedom. Rape deprives people of that freedom. And that's why what is happening in England right now is one of the biggest stories. I, October 31st is the deadline. I think we should all be watching it. And we don't watch it because... We don't watch it because it's England and it's far away. And what do we know? I'd rather hear, you know, New York is just as far away uh, from here as England is from New York. So we don't care that much about it. But still, still, it is it is a test of whether or not individuals can take back power. You know, there's a wonderful, wonderful story about uh, article about this in the Claremont Review of Books by Christopher Caldwell. I think it's called Why Hasn't Brexit Happened? Uh, and I highly recommend it. As always, I recommend the Claremont Review of Books. Now I have to add the uh, advisor, uh, the uh, the warning that my son is now an editor over there. But before he even thought of being an editor over there, I always told you that Claremont Review of Books is one of the great journals and you can get a lot of it online uh, for free, but you should subscribe if you can. But he Caldwell has this uh, article about this where he explains what's going on. So there was this powerful, powerful fear campaign against Brexit. If you do this, the economy is going to crash. You know, your children will burn. You know, the world will fall apart. If you leave the EU, if Britain leaves the EU, Everything will go wrong. But this, when, when it happened, turnout for the election, Caldwell says, was massive. And the 52% to 48% victory was extraordinary. That's a big, uh, a big difference. The 17.4 million people who voted to leave the EU were the largest number of Britons who had ever voted for anything. That's the largest number of Britons who ever voted for anything. So when Theresa May took over and she was not pro-Brexit, why they gave her the uh, premiership, I don't know. Why she became prime minister, I don't know. But she said, you know, Brexit means Brexit, but she didn't mean it. And she got herself in such a tangle with the EU that by the time she was finished, leaving Brexit gave the Britons less power, less self-governance than um, 
than Stane would have given them. So like she basically left her office in tears and in disgrace because she didn't do the one thing, the one thing that the British people had demanded that she do. And all this stuff about, oh, let's have another referendum, an old, old EU trick. They constantly uh, want votes until they get the vote that they want, and then there are no more votes. So they know that that's a lie, and people won't fall for it this time. So now Boris Johnson has taken charge of the Conservative Party, and he is this kind of wild man, very, ed- you know, they, they compare him to Trump because he's got the funny hair and he's kind of offbeat uh, and all this. But he is an Oxford educated guy, uh, you know, and he has been uh, in the elites. But he has said he is going to make Brexit happen. Here, here he is. I want everybody to know there are no circumstances in which I will ask Brussels to delay We're leaving on the 31st of October, no ifs or buts. We will not accept any attempt to go back on our promises or scrub that referendum. And armed and fortified with that conviction, I believe we will get a deal at that crucial summit in October, a deal that Parliament will certainly be able to scrutinise. Okay, without getting too much into the high weeds about British politics, right? The thing is here is what he's saying is if we are willing to leave without a deal, and remember what what the EU is, it's basically a series of trade negotiations that comes at a price, right? It comes at the price that Brussels gets to make your laws, okay? Brussels makes the law, and you that basically can, can supersede British law, can supersede national law in certain circumstances. So he is saying we have to show that we're willing to leave without a deal, but then we will negotiate. Because what Theresa May did is she went with hat in hand and said, please let us leave. And the EU doesn't want them to leave because once they leave, then all the countries can leave. The EU is, could be finished. People want to govern themselves. So here's the difference. And Caldwell just makes this case. So what, what, what's happening now is they're starting to pass, try to pass laws that will keep him from leaving on the 31st that will delay the vote again. And what uh, Johnson has said is, if you do that, if you try to stop me, I'm going to hold a general election. Okay, this is obviously part of the the, uh, parliamentary idea. He can hold a general election, which he believes will give him more strength in parliament. And Tony Blair is in a panic because the left Remember, the left is now run by this horrible guy, Jeremy Corbyn. He's an anti-Semite. He's a communist, basically. And Tony Blair says, no, 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 don't go for the general election. They're laying a trap to seem as if pushed into an election whilst actively preparing for one. And they do this because they know there are two issues in British politics, not one, and we should be frank about it. One is Brexit, the other is the Corbyn leadership. It is the interplay between these two issues that has really shaped and defined British politics over the past three to four years. Boris Johnson knows that if no deal Brexit stands on its own as a proposition, it might well fail. But if he mixes it up with the Brexit question and the Corbyn question together in a general election, he could succeed, despite a majority being against a no deal Brexit, because some may fear a Corbyn premiership more. Now, remember, that's, so that's easy to understand. He's mixing up the Corbyn question with the Brexit question, and Blair doesn't want that to happen because he believes that he can defeat the no-deal Brexit. But to defeat the no-deal Brexit, remember, just takes away Boris Johnson's negotiating power. His negotiating power is that he's willing to leave. And without the no-deal Brexit, he may not 
do a no-deal Brexit, but without that, he can't negotiate the Brexit at all. And so what they're really trying to do is they're trying to stop Brexit from leaving the EU. Why? That's the question. What does that have to do with the Jeffrey Epstein case? I'll tell you in just a second. But first, let's talk about wise Foods. Wise Foods are is a, it's a company that takes an innovative approach to providing dependable, simple, and affordable freeze-dried food for emergency preparedness and outdoor use. You need this. Why? Because wherever you live, there is always some disaster that could happen that first responders may not get to you in a long in for a long time. It could be hours, it could be days, it could be weeks. You gotta have food on hand. It doesn't mean the end of the world. It just means for the next two days, three days, you got to be able to feed your family. When government government resources are strained, it can be a long time. You can't rely on somebody else. You can't rely on the government. You have to rely on yourself. You can't know what tomorrow may bring, but you can have peace of mind knowing that you'll be ready for it. Don't put yourself in a situation where you need something you don't have. Get prepared today. This week, my listeners can get any Wise Emergency or outdoor food product at an extra 25% off the lowest marked price by using the promo code, you guessed it, Clavin at checkout at wisefoodstorage.com or by calling 855-474-4084, where they still may ask you to have to spell Clavin. The shipping is free. Wise has a 90-day no-questions-asked return policy, so there's no risk in taking the initiative to get yourself and your family more prepared today. Promo code Claven at wisefoodstorage.com to get any Wise emergency or outdoor food product at an extra 25% off and free shipping. When emergency strikes, you have to know how to spell Claven, K-L-A-V-A-N. So call Christopher Caldwell in the Claremont Review of Books points this out, that the transfer from British parliamentary law to EU law is a transfer from democracy, from parliamentary democracy, to court law. And what does he mean by that? The, the, the British don't have what we have, a Supreme Court. They have the House of Lords a little bit and not get, want to get into that. But basically, when the parliament passes a law, that's the law. No judge can strike the law down. Not like we have. We, have, we can strike the law down because we have that overarching written constitution against which laws can be judged. So the parliamentary British parliament is more democratic in some ways than our Congress. You send a guy, you delegate a guy to govern the country for you. You give him the power for you. You say, you are representing me in my little locale to, talk, to go in and vote for me and my neighbors uh, as my representative. That's representative democracy. Court democracy, court rule, means that there are rights that, that people have that the court can decide whether you're violating. This is why conservatives oppose things like Obergefell that gives, that says gay marriage is a constitutional right. Roe v. Wade says abortion is a constitutional right. Whether you're for or against gay marriage and abortion doesn't matter. What matters is that they are now taking away your right to delegate somebody to make law, and they're giving that right to the judge who can say, no, you have violated the sacred constitutional right. It doesn't really exist, but we say it exists. exists. You are violating this right to uh, to have gay marriage and you can't make a law in your locality. So your representative is stripped of his power. We have this in our country, not with just with these stupid Supreme Court decisions that take away our right to make law, but we have it with what we call the administrative state, the deep state, the EPA saying, you know, you have to make your cars in such and such a way. That's the law. We made that law. We don't represent anybody. And there's an 
old theory about this that you can't delegate your delegated powers. In other words, if we delegate Ted Cruz or Joe Biden to represent us in the Senate, he can't then delegate the power that we delegated to him because then we're no longer being represented. And that's what's happened here. That's what's happened here. That's how we've lost our constitutional rights. And that's what's happened in Britain with the EU making law that is then decided by judges. And what Caldwell points out is that judges represent the elite. doesn't mean they don't make judgments according to their morals. It means they come from the best schools. They are credentialed people who rise to power and that we are now being governed by the elite. And that's what all this is about. That's why you're getting guys like Donald Trump, uh, who is such a, you know, loose cannon, why you're getting people like Boris Johnson, also a loose cannon, because it's hard to find people who are not in the elite who will take the elite on. This is why Donald Trump is not the enemy. I've, I've told you a million times, I have all kinds of problems with Donald Trump, but he's not the enemy. He's not the thing I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of people in power who no longer remember that the individual has rights, that a little girl has a right not to be raped, and it's your responsibility not to attack her. It's your responsibility. She hasn't got the power. She hasn't got the decide decision-making power. And the elites lose track of that. If they didn't lose track of that, Epstein and Harvey Weinstein would not have operated with the full knowledge of everyone around them for all those years. They lose track of it. People in power lose track. Power corrupts. And the power has corrupted the EU. That's why they're holding on to, to Britain. And that's why people in Britain, the elite in Britain, are holding on. And that's why they're calling the people deplorable who voted against them. More people voted for Brexit in Britain than any any uh, number of Britons have ever voted for anything. And, in, and here with Donald Trump, that's why they're calling you deplorable. That's why they're calling you white supremacists. It is about power. It is about the power of a small group of people over the rest of us. And the thing is, that is also why I keep arguing that we as conservatives, we who believe in the individual, also have to stand up for the poor, also have to stand up for the little guy. Because listen, the elites buy them. The elites buy them. They say, we'll give you stuff. We'll give you a guaranteed income. We'll give you guaranteed health care. We'll take away your debts. We'll pay off your debts by taking the money from the middle class and giving it to you. We have to find better ways to do that, better ways to handle it. That's why I know, you know, everybody yells at me every time I take down Ayn Rand. I did it in the mailbag last week. I took down Ayn Rand. And yes, I heard from all the people what an idiot I am. But no, I love capitalism. I support capitalism. I don't worship capitalism. I worship the God of the least of us. And conservatives have to take those people into account as well if we are going to get people back to the point where they are willing to govern themselves. This is all about the power of the elites, you know, Steve Bannon, he's not the favorite, favorite person of the Daily Wire. Obviously, Ben and Steve Bannon have a long history and hate each other. But Steve Bannon once said, if you think they're going to give you your government back without a fight, you're kidding yourself. That is absolutely true. These are who our elites are. They have failed us. They have failed morally. And we need to take power back the way it was supposed to be when our Constitution was written. Got a great guest coming up, but I got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Come over to dailywire.com. While you're there, subscribe for the simple reason that you have the money. We want your money. Give your money to us. And then you can be in the mailbag tomorrow. Hit dailywire.com, hit the podcast button, hit the Andrew Claven podcast, hit that mailbag button, ask me anything you want. I will solve all your problems. That's pretty good for 10 lousy bucks a month.
Monica Klein is a former Planned Parenthood-trained sexual health education instructor who collaborated with the nonprofit for 10 years and worked with their Title X program, and I will ask her about that. She now runs It Takes a Family and uses her experience to encourage parents to reclaim parenthood and become their children's greatest advocates and educators. Monica, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. First, could you explain what it, what Title X is and what it means to be a Title X educator? Sure. Well, Title X is family planning. So the whole purpose of Title X is to have healthy families, healthy moms, and healthy babies. Um, and it's really for planning out and spacing their children. Um, and from the beginning of Title X, um, abortion has never been considered a pregnancy option for family planning. Uh, so really nothing has changed. Um, abortion should not be, Title X does not support abortion, nor are you supposed to refer for abortion when you have Title X money. So you were working for Planned Parenthood, which is largely in the business of abortions, and you were teaching Title X uh, family planning to people. What were, what were you teaching them? So it, it, actually, I was an HIV prevention educator, okay. um, and I was hired by a different organization, but I did eventually become a Title X training manager through a national training center. And so my job was to train all Title X clinics about the regulations and key concepts of the grant. Um, but from the very beginning of my career, uh, 10, long, 10 years of, of working in family planning, Planned Parenthood trained me on how to educate teenagers. Um, and so what they taught me was basically to really expose children to all sorts of sexual behavior. Hmm. Their rationalization for this is that it's about prevention, that we need to teach them about sexually transmitted infections and HIV and pregnancy and how to avoid pregnancy, which I think is public health. Um, but the other piece of it is to expose those kids to explicit details about sex that really normalize sex at a really young age, which really the kids were placed in really found themselves in really high risk behaviors, um, which really grooms those kids to be future customers of Planned Parenthood. Wow. Long customers. <laughs> okay. So now you, you're obviously not advocating sexual ignorance for children, but you're saying no. that you're saying that specifically this form the, the things you were teaching were essentially normalizing behaviors that were dangerous to the children. That's that's what you're saying? Yes. Yes. So comprehensive sex education and especially Planned Parenthood, and there's many more organizations that are doing this, and you can find out who they are at Future of Sex Education. And they basically believe that young people have uh, sexual rights apart from what their parents teach them. And they do believe that we should normalize all sexual behavior. Otherwise, we're judging people if we do not normalize all sexual behavior. But the problem, uh, well, I mean, we already know what the problem is with that, but especially for young people. So it's really changing their attitudes about sex at a very young age. So they're they're just really being fed this, and uh, you know, they're being indoctrinated really into this high risk behavior, um, and really that just means a dependency on Planned Parenthood as future customers for more condoms, contraception, testing, treatment, as well as abortion. So you you left obviously, and you've started. Uh, it takes a family. What are you recommending now? What are you teaching now? So this is what I learned from Planned Parenthood in all those 10 years. And this is a direct quote from multiple clinics. Parents are a barrier to service. 
<laughs> they know. Yeah. They know that parents are one of the most powerful influences over their children. Wait, can I just? I have to stop you. Just a second. Do, do they Go actually? Ahead. Do they actually say those words to you? Yes, and I'll explain the rationalization. Okay. So they said that when parents find out that their children are accessing services at a Planned Parenthood, parents' natural instinct instincts to protect their children kick in. And they ensure that that child does not go to Planned Parenthood again. And the ch- the parent starts to educate the child instead. So Planned Parenthood will go through to any extent to ensure that parents are not part of these services. They do not want parents to be involved in their children's sex education. The only good parent to a Planned Parenthood is one who agrees in the same ideology of having young people be sexually promiscuous throughout their youth and into adulthood. Um, but otherwise, they do see that parents are a barrier to service. It keeps children out of their clinics. Wow. So that's why I created It Takes a Family, because obviously they know that parents are powerful. They know that parents have great influence over their children, and we want to protect our children. So, But the problem is, is so many parents have checked out, or they feel like they're not equipped to talk about this information. So what my organization does is, uh, you know, families in, um, invite me into their communities and I will teach parents the best ways to teach their children because I believe this information needs to be taught at home by their parents. So you're, you're teaching parents what to teach their children, which then, of course, they can decide what they want to take and what they don't want to take. There's, right. there's got to be in young people, I know that boys are crazy and boys will do anything, but there's got to be at least in girls and probably in some boys, some sense that this is dangerous stuff. I mean, that that maybe they don't want to treat their bodies this way. Uh, you know, in other words, you must be to, to teach them all the stuff and normalize all the stuff is in some way putting pressure on them to do something that they might naturally not want to do. You know, I'm so glad you said that the children are inhibited when you start this education. And a big part of those curriculums are to break down those inhibitions. <sighs> by. Ex- I, know, I know it sounds awful, yeah. and I won't share the details. We could have it another time, but um, it, it breaks down the inhibitions of the children and it starts to get them accustomed and they start to, again, that behavior starts to seem normal to them because, hey, these are the experts. This is an expert credentialed educator from Planned Parenthood or whoever. Um, And so they begin to trust that individual instead of their parents. But you're right. Actually, there are studies that have shown where the youth have said that this kind of sex education puts more pressure on them to have sex than even their peers or media. Ah, They also say that parents are their greatest influencers. And so they would they really welcome teenagers have said that they welcome having their parents talk to them about this information. And the parents are being essentially taught by the culture itself that if they uh, don't like certain behaviors and they're being judgmental. You know, you said you weren't going to give me uh, details, but give me a give me an example of how you break down a kid's inhibition. So one of the first things, um, it's called an icebreaker. I now call it a, the first step is to break down inhibitions is you walk into the classroom and you say, yeah, we're going to talk about sex. I know it sounds a little uncomfortable, um, but we're going to, you know, there's no judgment in this classroom. So let's do something fun. Well, I'm going to write on this whiteboard, or you can get a marker and come up to the board. And I want you to just write down every sexual, every slang term you can think of for body parts or for a sexual activity. 
And slowly the kids are kind of like, oh, really? You know, we're not normally, you know, used to doing this. But they start to get into it. People are giggling. They start to even the quiet kids are starting to kind of loosen up a little bit with this. And really, the way I talk to people about this today is that it, just imagine how, you know, this is very similar to what a predator would do, exposing yeah, children. It's just absolutely true. Yeah. It, yeah. It exposes children to sexually explicit information. And then, then they start to, and they giggle about it. So they kind of break down the inhibition so that the predator can go on to the next step of becoming sexually active with the children. And so really this icebreaker and just the, the whole curriculum of exposing children to different kinds of sexual activity is really breaking down their inhibitions. You know, I'm running out of time, but I just, I, I just want to know, is, are there, are, is there data that shows that this is damaging to people? Is there data that shows that, that kids are affected by this in such a way that they become more sexually active and more endangered? There, there are. And of course, Planned Parenthood and the people who have produced this data as well are always, you know, fighting with one another. Uh, it, but there is data that shows that when children become sexually active at a young age, for example, that there are have higher rates of depression and suicidal ideation. Uh, that many of them through polls have actually said that they regret becoming sexually active and they wish they had waited. So we're seeing that, yes, sexual activity at, at a very young age is harming them, not only emotionally, mentally, but even physically. Uh, Monica Kalina, thank you so much for coming on. That's really an education for me. I'm sorry to hear some of this. It takes a family. How can people find this? Currently, they can go to monicacline.com or they can email me at hello at monicacline.com. Thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. I, I have to recover a little bit from that. I've been just uh, absolutely stunned. But we, that's what I was talking about at the opening, uh, that bad ideas take you down bad roads. And even nice people wind up going down those roads without knowing uh, what they've become, without re realizing what they've become. Uh, final reflection. I was at the... Um, the Hollywood Bowl had a wonderful time. I thank uh, Josh Kerr for bringing us and uh, letting us uh, share his seats. Um, and they did a tribute to John Wilson, uh, Williams, sorry, John Williams, who conducts the uh, L.A. Philharmonic and who wrote the uh, some so many great um, soundtracks. He wrote Star Wars. That's the big one is Star Wars. I think he also did E.T. Uh, and um so everybody shows up with these lightsabers, right? They wave the lightsabers. And, you know, it was really an interesting experience because on the one hand, uh, it was delightful. It's delightful to have people in L.A. come together. It's a big city. It's nice that they come together to appreciate music. Uh, and it's nice that they come together to appreciate the Philharmonic, which it does a whole, you know, all through the summer, the Hollywood Bowl does all these different things, which include Beethoven and include movie themes and all this. But at the same time, every time I see the devotion that Star Wars that fans have. And this is not, believe me, this is not an attack on Star Wars fans at all. I, I, I am touched by the fact that I know that Star Wars started out as a sort of tribute to the old Flash Gordon uh, films. George Lucas loved these Flash Gordon films. They all started, I think it was the Emperor Ming was always taking over the universe and Flash Gordon was always going to uh, fight them. And they always started with that scroll that you're probably familiar with from Star Wars, where the story is, uh, you know, the story till now unfolds and kind of scrolls into the background, just like it does in Star Wars. That's an imitation of that. And as he went forward, Lucas, you know, uh, incorporated other influences. Uh, the great uh, Japanese filmmaker uh, Akira 
Kurosawa was part of his influences. And of course, Joseph Campbell, whom I, I've read, I think, virtually everything that Campbell has ever written, who wrote about mythology uh, and what mythology means and what the, he wrote a famous book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which uh, talks about the meaning of the kind of monomyth, what James Joyce called the monomyth, the, the one myth that all myths sort of partake of. And, uh, and um, Lucas incorporated that, uh, those ideas into Star Wars. I believe Campbell was actually uh, a um, consultant on it and brought those heroic ideas and what the hero means into that story. And what I find so touching is this, this thing that sort of started out, and you can see it when you watch the first Star Wars, this sort of started out as a parody that people were so hungry so desperately hungry for these ideas about heroism, about manhood, about adulthood, about becoming an adult, that they idolized Star Wars with complete seriousness. With complete seriousness, they discuss the Star Wars uh, idea in the Star Wars universe and they where it should go and where it goes a place that they don't like. And it just shows you how hungry people are for these ideas. And these ideas are built in to the mythology of the Greeks, the mythology of the Romans, and certainly in a new and fresh and completely revolutionary way into, into the stories of Christianity, which as C.S. Lewis said was the myth that really happened, the myth that was actual reality. And what's sad to me is that there are not enough artists who can incorporate those ideas into stories that are adult and complex. The only movie I can think of that actually talks about real heroism uh, in a complex and deep and human way recently that was a great movie was American Sniper uh, by Clint Eastwood. And there's such a need to, once, once you become an adult, there is a need to maybe leave some of these uh, heroes behind that are so pure and so perfect and that live in a universe that doesn't exist and remind people of what it looks like to be a hero in a world that does exist and how complex it is and how it doesn't make you perfect and it doesn't make you anything except a hero. And that's why American Sniper is such a good film. And that's why I'm sort of sometimes sad when I see Star Wars fans that they have nothing to move on to, that even as they grow older and then grow old, they still cling to what is essentially a fantasy film. Not that that's not an attack on them or on the film. It's simply to say that with that, we also need a deeper version uh, of the heroic story that I think is really lacking from American culture, which is why so many films are about superheroes and so few films are any good. Uh, so anyway, those were just my reactions to listening to wonderful music, wonderful evening at the Hollywood Bowl that I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, but it does remind me of the need for something that's missing in American culture, which is complexity and depth and adulthood and heroism. I got to go. Tomorrow is the mailbag. Don't miss it. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Oh, hooray, hooray. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, give us a five-star review and also tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Wall Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Austin Stevens and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. And our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Edited by Adam Saevitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. And our production assistant is Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. 
On the Matt Wall Show, we're not just discussing politics. We're talking culture, faith, family, all of the things that are really important to you. So come join the conversation.